You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 25th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It's genuinely sort of impressive quite how boring this manifesto is. When the Institute of Fiscal Studies is saying, hang on, is this it? It's a good sign that there's really not much. The UK's Conservative Party manifesto has been released. And to the surprise of no one, with even the most fleeting acquaintance with Boris Johnson's methods, it seems to reflect no beliefs at all. My guests Tessa Shishkovitz and James Ball will discuss that and the day's other news, including Frankenstein. Einstein writes a contract for his monster, but will that curtail its rapacious appetite for human souls? And wolves in Europe, not Russian biker gangs, actual wolves. Plus, while no one is above the law in theory, the reality is that the Justice Department states that a president cannot be tried in a criminal court while in office. Is the US presidential impeachment process fit for purpose? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile magazine, and James Ball, global editor at the Bureau and author of Post-Truth and Bluffocracy, among other titles. Let's start in the UK, now two weeks and a bit from the general election, which will likely tee up the general election after that, probably in about March. Uh, the more or less incumbent Conservative Party have lashed their campaign to the slogan, Get Brexit Done, which, while a nonsensical reiteration of the fantasy that Brexit will be easy and straightforward, a proposition now into its fourth year of debunking, has at least cut through, as a slogan should. But is there anything more to the Tories and their leader Boris Johnson than this? James, first of all, is this bluffocracy in action, or is there actually any sign of any ideological underpinnings we could describe as Johnsonism? I mean... It's genuinely sort of impressive quite how boring this manifesto is. Um, (laughs) I mean, genuinely, genuinely, when the Institute of Fiscal Studies is saying, hang on, is this it? This is a bit dull. You know, the ultimate sort of calm, responsible stewards of government technocrat types are going, really? This it? Um, It's a good sign that there's really not much. And it is that problem with Boris Johnson where you are pretty sure, a little bit like David Cameron... He'd fulfilled all of his ambitions uh, for what he wanted to do with number 10 when he moved in. Uh, He might want to change the curtains and for his ego, he needs to not be the shortest ever and he'd like to win a majority. But he doesn't really want to do anything. He's not there because he's sort of got some vision for Britain. He's there because he wanted to be PM because that was the biggest bauble. Um, Tessa, do you discern as a a doubtless bemused outsider to this process uh, any articulation as yet from Boris Johnson, any coherent view as to the kind of country he would like the United United Kingdom should at last to be? Well, the manifesto, I see it more as a tactical voting device. You know, if he wants to break into the northern red wall of the Labour seats that he needs in order to win his majority, if he would now come with a heavily neo-Thatcherist manifesto, they would not vote for him. I mean, he gets them on the Brexit issue because he can deliver Brexit if they vote for him by the end of January, the first stage. But the second important issue for people is inequality. And after 10 years of austerity uh, government of the conservatives, 
this country, the last thing they need is more of that. And this is why this manifesto sounds like a soft version of, uh, of what Angela Merkel would uh, offer, you know, a kind of more centrist idea of putting money back also into social care and putting money, not a lot and not as much as labor, obviously. But this is why he's doing that, I think. James, is this a recognition possibly on the part of Johnson and or whoever actually drafted the Conservative Party's manifesto that the party is so split and fractured and rancorous that they can't really start articulating any grand principles because the party will then just pull itself to pieces again? No, I suspect it's the opposite in some ways. (laughs) I think if Johnson actually does pull off a majority from this, Tories will fall into line. They like a winner. Um, What this is, is a do not throw away your lead. This is a, you know, this is, I am not uh, good at sports analogies and yet I'm going to try one. This Go is, on. This, is this will one, be a high wire act. This is one nil up 80 minutes in. <laughs> and what you do is you keep everyone at the back. You know, you are not trying anything bold. You're not trying anything interesting. So someone said, this isn't a manifesto. This is a bunch of focus grouped, cheap stuff so that you can not really commit yourself to very much not lock yourself into anything unpopular. So much of it was, what did Theresa May screw up in 2017? How can I fix it? And so it's the safest, steadiest, one nation kind of manifesto you could have, except it's weirdly lashed onto this completely chaotic, very hard Brexit. Um, And oddly, that's probably quite a popular combination. The, The very strange thing is, it's Brexit, NHS, law and order. And on some polls, the Tories have actually come out ahead of Labour as most trusted on the NHS. That is baffling, especially given the huge sums Labour are offering to put into it. Um, Tessa, on that that point, and it is a reasonable one, that Theresa May in the previous election, which on the one hand wasn't that long ago and yet feels like it happened in the mid-1700s, she did actually <laughs> attempt to articulate some policies other than just Brexit. These obviously proved monstrously unpopular, which is why, uh, despite leading 1-0 at about 80 min- at about 80 minutes, she managed to lose, well, or at least... Kind of humiliate a draw when you should have a win. Exactly. L- last minute winner for the opposition. Um, is what's basically going on here that they're hoping that nobody is worried about anything else? That this is the Conservatives just trying to make everything about Brexit because they know that's all they've got. Well, in a deeper sense, I think Britain is so overwhelmed by populism that it's really difficult for anyone now to uh, come up with a sincere political program. Um, because the, the way Labour is spending money in ahead of the polls is also astonishing. This will not exactly add up to anything. And, um, and Boris Johnson's biggest problem, as you both said before, I mean, he does not have a political vision besides his own career and that he got latched onto a hard Brexit. And now to make sense of that is really quite difficult. I mean, I think that these two years since the 2017 elections so much happened and people the country is so desperate for investment in social care and in the NHS and in education I mean after 10 years these cracks in the slides have to be fixed on the playgrounds and this is why if uh, Boris Johnson gets a large enough majority that he can actually keep Jacob Rees-Mogg locked up in his house in Somerset and not have to bring him back into on the front bench, then he might also move uh, a real kind of more centrist policies of the Tory party into 
the into the government uh, declaration for the next four years if he stays in power. I mean, we will see about that, but there's, it's not completely completely out of the question. Uh, James, is it a stress to suggest that there's been a bit of a reversal in the, in the dynamics of the two major parties? Because for years, the Conservatives' whole thing was, you know, like us or hate us, we are a party of principle and conviction. We know what we stand for. This was a thing they kept beating during the sort of triangulating Blair-Brown years, sort of harking back to Margaret Thatcher. Okay, fine, she was divisive, but she had principles, she stood for something. Whereas now we have a Labour Party that very much does stand for something, whether you like it or agree with it or not. Um, And the Conservatives just appear to have have given up on even feigning any impression of being a, a party underpinned by any ideological coherence. I think it's absolutely fair to say that the Tories had a phase in the early 2000s of trying that, but that's when they were losing heavily. (laughs) Um, I mean, Thatcher ran as a moderate in 79 by Tory standards. She had a very wet first cabinet. She ran against a very left-wing Labour Party in 83, which let her go far more extreme, and then just rolled off her lasting popularity. Um, Cameron moderated the hell out of the Tories and got them sort of over the line. May did the very odd thing of actually running a quite moderate platform, but she was so confident of winning the election. Her manifesto was about getting through a five-year government and being able to do sensible, responsible, big things, which was why it had so many really unpopular things in it. It was to go to Tory MPs, no, you've voted on this manifesto, you can't, you know, oppose me doing this thing. So May was trying to get through five years and ignored the six weeks. Boris Johnson's manifesto is only to get him through until the 13th of December. I think, really, you could probably disregard anything in it because it doesn't really rule very much in or out. Uh, If he then gets to the other side, as ever, Boris Johnson is the unknown quantity. He could moderate right up and try and be a popular leader or he could really just go full red meat to the sort of Tory right. No one knows. Tessa Shishkovitz and James Ball back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam says her government will listen to the public after pro-Beijing candidates were thrashed in the city's local elections. Reports suggest that 17 of Hong Kong's 18 councils are now controlled by pro-democracy politicians. The election saw unprecedented voter turnout. The frontrunner to lead Germany's Social Democrats, Olaf Scholz, says he's optimistic that his party's coalition with Chancellor Angela Merkel's Conservatives will hold after next weekend's leadership contest. Scholz is being challenged by two candidates from the party's left-wing branch. It's been confirmed that the world's biggest luxury goods company, LVMH, is buying the U.S. jeweler Tiffany & Company for more than $16 billion. Tiffany has become something of a New York institution since it was founded in 1837, and it now employs around 14,000 people across the world. And the Monocle Minute reports that commercial operators of services such as Airbnb are packing their bags in Toronto. It follows a decision to uphold City Hall's ruling that restrictions should be placed on short-term rentals. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's been making news. Back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with James Ball and Tessa Shishkovitz. Let's move along to a story which may be related to our first one, if one accepts the proposition that the online realm has done for the public discourse roughly what turning chimpanzees loose in a restaurant kitchen would do for the food. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, developer of the World Wide Web, appears to be having something of an Alfred Nobel moment, attempting to ameliorate the damage done by his invention. Berners-Lee has unveiled what he calls his contract for the web. It is backed by many big tech outfits and in very general terms its nine central tenets urge governments, corporations and individuals to behave less terribly online. Tessa, did Tim Berners-Lee make the mistake of overestimating humanity from the beginning? Well, I think we should still thank him for helping to launch our internet world for all of us because fundamentally I still think this is a really, really good idea. The question is only how we regulate it and we have to get used every time on these big, big changes in the world to the fact that we have to invent a legal framework for what is happening. I'm astonished, for example, that uh, I don't know if you saw the speech, all of you, of Sasha Baron Cohen at the Anti-Defamation League on Friday and he was spot on with so many things he said that he says, look, you know, Hitler could have posted political ads on Facebook and Facebook would have allowed it and how astonishing that is and it is true because we all have to adhere to certain rules in our professions in the media as if if we are journalists or if we are um, politicians we cannot do anything in in newspapers and radio stations and television stations just like that so why should social media not be put under the same regulations and that's something that can be done and I'm quite um, glad that people like Tim Berners-Lee are now on board, uh, that uh, celebrities like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen come out uh, in favor of regulation, because that's something that I think, you know, experts, of course, James is the expert on this, uh, are calling for already for years. Uh, James, is there something in this particular contract for the web that Berners-Lee has unveiled that does look like a framework for a way forward, or, or is he attempting to insert toothpaste back in the tube? Um, I don't think it's quite either. I think it's a very well-meaning, high-minded, cosy sort of uh, idea, and as you can probably tell by those words, I think it's going to do absolutely nothing. Um we are long past the time where nice little wouldn't it be nice if everyone was nice voluntary codes are going to do anything about this. Um, the internet has sort of built the ultimate governance problem. We don't really have any actual functioning system of international order in the real world. And then we've built a network that's put half the world's population on it and a third of the world's population just using some single companies when you start looking mm. at Facebook and Google. And so we've joined things together on a scale that was pretty much unimaginable and left ourselves with headache after headache after headache. Um, and that scale of technological change needs legal changes, it needs institutional changes, it needs the kind of changes that take decades to get used to. They've sort of built a new world. Setting out what some of the principles should be and getting a lot of people to sign up to them to at least go, hey, we like these rough ideas is nice, but they'll find it a lot easier to get people to sign up to it while it has no teeth to it than they ever would if there was any uh, sort of sanction to it or any sort of specificity to it. Um, Tessa, there was always angry populism before the internet 
of course. But is, is there something about the nature of how it operates which amplifies that strain of politics above any others? And, and I guess the follow-up question to that would be, is there any amount of regulation that's going to change that? I'm not sure how to answer that question because it is really incredible how difficult it has become for people to not be so viciously attacked. And as you can see here in Britain, in that about 50 mostly female MPs sort of <laughs> decided not to run again because mm. it's just too incredible, difficult to step out in this um, public sphere of social media after you've been so viciously attacked day in, day out. But I think we have to confront it. There is no other way. We will not get rid of it. There is no point in saying like there is no uh, social media. We all, all the election campaigns are driven by that. It makes the internet, the internet makes us also very straightforward with a lot of things and a lot of people unfortunately also take it uh, for their personal their personal anger out at the world which might also have an effect that they are not so angry at home maybe if they can do it online <laughs> but i think it's that's a, it's a, that's a hopeful analysis it's a hopeful analysis <laughs> but i think we have to sort of confront each aspect of this and just see as james also says that we get regulations in that make it a bit more regulated. It will not go away anymore, I think. I mean, James, you're quite right that I'm sure companies are signing up to these uh, happy clappy, let's all join hands, I'd like to teach the world to sing variety initiatives as a way of uh, forestalling any ultimate regulation of what they do. But is the end point of this going to be that people tell organisations like Facebook and like Twitter, which has not as yet signed up to this, that you are responsible for everything that gets published under your masthead, just like any given newspaper or magazine. I think we actually start to hit on some quite tricky territory there because we're not actually angry at the social media companies. We're angry at each other. <laughs> and it's people expressing those opinions. And what we're often asking is for people to not be allowed to express their opinion. Now, if that's abusive, if that's racist, if that's out there, they already have some responsibility for it and have to ban it. Do we actually want to start having that level of control and especially corporate control on what people say? I don't think we can ever want Facebook or Twitter to have the same amount of responsibility as a newspaper editor has for what appears in there. They need to bear more responsibility. They need to have something resembling duty of care. They need to have standards where they could be found to be negligent. You know, are they a responsible custodian of these public debate platforms? Is that the same as saying they have to pre-moderate every message? No, I don't think we want to end up hitting that point because part of this is just structural to the internet. Let's imagine that you have a niche, one in a thousand view, that you're very angry about. It, it's you been know, said. Aliens are real and every Welsh person is an alien and you're, you need the world to know this. If you're just in your village and you start saying it in a supermarket, it's going to be a go away and you know eventually you know you're saying it in your pub no one no one agrees with you to say go away you know honestly if you keep going on about this you're barred you might just shut up about it and start getting on with the rest of your life online if you've got a one in a thousand view there are seventy thousand people in the uk who share it and you can all <laughs> hang out you can start thinking it's really sort of normal you know every other person in the pub believes the same thing as you but more radically and you wind each other up that's not Twitter's fault. That's just the fact that the internet finds lonely and marginalised people and connects them. That's often a great thing. If you're a queer community, if you're sort of mm. struggling in so many ways, it can be a great support network. But if you have really fringe or unpleasant views, it means you'll find thousands of other people with them. 
And that's about the medium. And we have to work out handling that. And just going, Mark Zuckerberg's a nasty and weird man doesn't actually fix that problem. Okay, well, let's look finally at France, where it would be pleasant to think that one of Aesop's best-known protagonists is at last getting a chance to say, see, I told you so. A wolf has been spotted in the Charente Maritime region of the west of the country, the first such sighting of such a creature in the wild in nearly 30 years. A photo was taken which confirmed the wolf's presence, an actual unarguable in-focus picture, as opposed to the blurry evidence traditionally advanced in similar circumstances. While this is debatably good news for sheep, it is a result for the wolf, which was hunted to extinction in France in the 1930s. Um, Tessa, first of all, are, are you thrilled, excited, overjoyed by the prospect of wild wolves in Western France? I think wolves should be part, you know, they sh we should not be so scared that they take over. We are not standing alone in a forest surrounded by uh, well, it, a pack it, it, of wolves. It starts with one. <laughs> it starts with one and then they, you have to pull out chocolate to feed them like in this ad that we see in the cinemas here now and then they will be peaceful. But I think in general all this debate about extinction um, of uh, all these different kinds of animals the wolf is part, has been part of our mountains forever. It's okay if it's there. We can sort of control that. And I looked at the list of um, extinction-threatened um, animals, and there are so many that I've never even heard about. So it's really worth looking at it. For example, in Austria on the list is one that is called in English a turncoat which we, in, in the German expression of Wendehals, we use that especially after the Second World War. A lot of people turned colors quickly. So this is what this bird can do. So I would really wish that we can prevent him from extinction. <laughs> I mean, James, what is going on here is a thing called rewilding. And there, there's various ideas advanced about that. Some are pretty benign. The Eurasian beaver will be reintroduced to Somerset and Surrey next spring. The idea being that its, it's dam building enterprise will help naturally regulate river flows and so forth forth. Um, the Scottish Wildlife Trust wants to bring the lynx back to Scotland, um, which I'm a big fan of, but then I don't live in Scotland and I don't own a farm. Um, is the problem with all of these things that they tend to be most, uh, the people they tend to most excite are the ones who won't have to deal with the consequences? So, I mean, I was going to say, I think uh, wolves being back in France is what people voted for when they voted for Brexit. But... Um, <laughs> Um, I have to say, I just like the idea of this. It's nice to have a bit of magic in the world again, a little bit of menace when you're sort of there. Like, I grew up on the Yorkshire Moors. I love the idea that there might be a wolf in it when I'm, like, walking around there. I am quite happy to take the risk of being eaten by a wolf for the, like, magic of knowing that's a possibility. So bring, bring all the animals back, like any of them that can uh, survive in the UK and not eat more than sort of one or two people a year. Um, I'm, I'm up for it. I volunteer as tribute. Tessa Shishkovitz and James Ball, thank you both. In a moment, we will hear a little bit more about the complexities of putting a president on trial. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, as impeachment proceedings rumble on in the United States, Monocle's affairs editor Chris Chermack asks if the procedure is fit for purpose. It's a strange notion, a trial held in a political courtroom. If Donald Trump is impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives, which seems increasingly likely given that it is controlled by Democrats, 
The trial that determines his fate will be held in the Republican-controlled Senate. As if to emphasize the sham nature of all of this, a group of Republican senators, the would-be jurors, huddled openly with the White House, the defendant, last week to discuss their strategy. Such an event is currently the only option the U.S. has for trying presidents. While no one is above the law in theory, the reality is that the Justice Department states that a president cannot be tried in a criminal court while in office. Hence Robert Mueller's decision not to issue a recommendation, one way or the other, on whether Trump obstructed justice during an investigation. Hence Robert Mueller's decision not to issue a recommendation, one way or the other, on whether Trump obstructed justice during an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Charges must come from lawmakers, a jury of his political peers, voted in by the electorate, rather than a courtroom. Contrast that with Israel, where, against the backdrop of a similarly polarized electorate, the Attorney General decided to file corruption charges against Benjamin Netanyahu last week. The Prime Minister predictably called the decision an attempted coup. Unlike Trump, his fate lies in the hands of the courts, unless Netanyahu's allies in Parliament succeed in passing laws that would make him immune to prosecution. So which system is better? Who should be charged with removing a leader from office? The courts? Lawmakers? Or the electorate? All we can hope is that both camps remember that impartiality and a fair hearing, the hallmarks of any judicial system, should lie at the center of the process. Our democracies depend on it. That was Chris Chermak, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was researched by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 